G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you going today? Good, thanks, Rowan. Good to be with you again. How about yourself? Going well, going really well, and looking forward to today's podcast. I do love these podcasts when we can do a bit of a delve into history, I suppose, and and talk about some people from real life and some more maybe relevant stories to the podcast than just some of the theory behind it, which I do enjoy, but I uh, always love a good story episode, Dad. So we've called today's episode A Fellowship of Famous Failures. So Dad, it sounds a bit like a dystopian J.R.R. Tolkien podcast on some level, but what are we going to be talking about today? Okay, and again, it was your topic following on, I think, from the very good choice of topic last week, looking at the notion of a sense of failure or success versus failure and looking at perfectionism or unrelenting standards. But yeah, I thought it was a very good idea of yours to look at examples of people who were at one point thought to be or described to be as a failure, but then they turned out to be just such remarkable examples of what we would call success in different ways. So it kind of shows how this dividing line between success and failure can be quite thin and arbitrary when we think of these famous examples. Well, I think that's so true. And I think even when you look into some of the examples of people who've succeeded, failure seems to be a big part of their journey. Like we spoke about that Michael Jordan quote last week, which I just love, where he said, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I've failed over and over and over again in my life, and that's why I succeeded. So obviously Michael Jordan, he's known as the GOAT dad, the greatest of all time, and for good reason too, but it's not as if he was without his failures as well. Yes, and there's also that famous Thomas Edison quote where he reportedly said that he'd not failed 10,000 times in trying to invent a light globe. He'd found 10,000 ways that they will not work. That put him onto the way that did work, and apparently someone described Edison as this guy who just won't look back. If they've spent a lot of money on something, he doesn't say, oh, gosh, we've lost a fortune. He said, hey, we had fun spending it. Certainly, and again, like we we see Thomas Edison is such a shiny example of success, but his failed inventions are are plentiful, I do believe. But I suppose an example similar to that Thomas Edison one is is probably what got me thinking about this as an episode topic, Dad, because I came across the example of Sir James Dyson, who invented the Dyson vacuum. And Sir James Dyson went through 5,126 failed prototypes plus all of his savings over 15 years before he found one that was a success. And like what that strikes me as is, can you imagine having a mate who for 14 years and 11 months has created 5,122 prototypes for his vacuum and then he comes to you and he says, this is the one, I've, I've got it here, just check out this, it's got great suction everything and then he, he shows it to you and it's absolutely rubbish, like... That is someone who in many ways we would look at and go, what on earth are you doing? And that's a, he's knighted now, Sir James Dyson. So clearly he was doing something right. It's interesting, isn't it, when you reflect on what kind of vision he must have had to be able to persist, as with Thomas Edison. 
like what kind of purpose or vision or direction that they would have had. So as we've talked about this topic last week and then starting off this week, that's what's coming across to me. If someone has that guiding light or direction or purpose, it reminds me what the Greeks said. They thought that each person might have a daemon that they referred to as like a direction in life. That was your thing. That's what moved you. Well, these people had a sense of that kind of purpose and that no doubt would have been easier to help them keep on persisting when things weren't working out each time that they tried it. Well, that I've brought it up a couple of times on the podcast, Dad, but I love that Leonardo da Vinci quote where he says, obstacles cannot crush me. Every obstacle yields to stern resolve. He who is fixed to a star does not change his mind. Like That seems to really get at the heart of that notion. But I suppose what struck me as well about looking at, for example, say Michael Jordan and James Dyson, like holding those two examples, Michael Jordan, as you say, it was about persistence in terms of getting over his failures in order to be able to get back up quickly and and take the next opportunity. Like he missed 9,000 shots, but to put himself in a position to take that next shot was something that was obviously a real strength of his. With Sir James Dyson, for example, he only had one success that came after... 5,126 failures. So in some ways, it's a different type of failure because at least Michael Jordan's getting maybe the the affirmation of making some shots along the way and he can think, oh, I can improve here and there. But for Sir James Dyson to stick it out through over 5,000 failed attempts, like that's such persistence on another level in some ways. Yes, it's an interesting pointer though to an attitude about learning, isn't it? Like like Thomas Edison's idea about he learnt ways that it wouldn't work. No doubt that was the same for Dyson. So what we might look at as a failed prototype, it sounds like how that actually did work is it was an exercise in shaping things or nudging it maybe in a slightly different direction, giving it a tweak. Okay, that didn't work. It needed a different kind of tweak. You imagine that by the time he got to number 5,000 compared to 3,000 or 2,000 is getting closer to a certain kind of goal. So I wonder if that's one of those examples where we could use the expression, learn to fail or you fail to learn. Clearly, Dyson was very accepting of things not working out. Each time he kept on doing it over 5,000 times, but there was that learning, there was that tweaking that was going on. And maybe that's partly about our habits in life. Maybe that's part of our striving in other ways. Maybe there's always some kind of feedback we can get from a situation that doesn't work the way we want. I think that's a really good point about mistakes in general in terms of, like, as someone who has failed at stuff, you know, (laughs) over the time and maybe dwell on that a little bit, like... If someone was to try something and succeed the very first time and I've failed at it a thousand times then you succeed on the thousand and first, on some level I feel that I know more about that process than the person who's just succeeded the first time. So I think that's a good point to make about mistakes. Like on one level we could see them as a failure but on another level they are informing us about what doesn't work as you say, as what Thomas Edison said. We are refining our process as we go along. Like It's not as if we go back to square one each time something doesn't work. So I think that's a, it's actually a really good example of, of even how to look at repeated failures. Well, I think that's even a bit of a misnomer, Dad, repeated failures. Well, potentially it's just informing us more about what that success is going to look like when it comes. And I suppose when it boils down to it, that's one of the wonderful things about scientific theory. Any form of science is basically not saying now we've reached the end point of understanding. 
understanding might keep on developing, like say if you go from Newtonian physics to quantum physics, something completely different, but it's an extra advance and it might have been unimagined something like 200 years ago and yet it enables the development of the mobile phone and all these amazing things that happen. But in science, there's this attitude that you never have an exact understanding of the truth. It's always trying to get closer to the truth. So they use this term very similitude. If you can't disprove a theory, you have more confidence in that theory. You're setting out to, in a sense, disprove it. You're looking to almost find a mistake in your theory, and that's what helped the advances come. So I suppose that would also be a craftsman working out how to craft a chair or a table. You imagine all the mistakes that people would have made along the way. I suppose painters, when they're learning their particular craft, you know, how many mistakes would maybe someone like Brett Whiteley or Van Gogh have made on the way kind of thing. I suppose any kind of pursuit is going to involve repeated approximations, if you like, trying to get closer to our goal. And I think there's also something to be said for recognising the value in connection that we can have with others from our mistakes because you know some people are going to be able to succeed first time and nearly everyone else is going to fail on some level and like I find it interesting in in for example business dad like when you're talking about a potential say customer or potential audience member of a podcast or something like this like they talk about the notion of connecting over pain points so saying hold on this is a problem that you have it's a source of frustration it's a source of discomfort Well, if you don't have any of those pain points yourself, you don't necessarily have a concept of what they are for other people. So you're not actually able to say to someone in a way that they're really going to resonate with and understand, this is where you're coming from, you know, to the best of my understanding. And if you are able to really put yourself in their shoes, well, then that gives you so much more opportunity to say, I get that, that's absolutely okay. And then you can make that connection so much more than you would have if you were just say for example talking over them and speaking in terms that they don't necessarily relate to themselves yes well I suppose when we look at that that's one of the main things about the human condition isn't it like we're flawed we're vulnerable things aren't going to work out perfectly we're not machines actually that's what makes life more interesting with people not being machines there's a degree of unpredictability about things in life and a lot of that is a good thing but also I think like you're suggesting our ways of relating to other people, recognising vulnerability or empathising with the pain of others or drawing on supports from others when we're in pain, that's part of how we really deepen and develop our relationships. It doesn't mean that we have to be on top of things all the time or always competent in every way or things working out wonderfully well. If we knew someone that in their life everything seemed to work out perfectly well all the time, they always seemed in control, nothing would go wrong in their life, I think it'd be pretty hard to relate to a person like that. Well, absolutely. And, and I think where it shows up, you know, an area that I see it come up a lot is, for example, football coaches. Like the best football coaches aren't necessarily the ones who are the best players. Maybe Lee Matthews is kind of the one that I can think of. He was a champion player and converted onto a champion football coach as well. But as a general rule, the ones who are the best players potentially aren't able to articulate things in a way that everyone can understand. Potentially they don't have a notion of the struggle as much as the players who struggled themselves throughout their career did. So uh, I think that's an area where we can almost look at, say, failures in terms of, say, someone could look back at their playing career and think, oh, there was elements of that that were a failure. But that's actually going to inform them to be a, a much better coach 
when the time comes to take up that role. Yes, and shortly I'm looking forward to hearing some of your stories of some of the failures of famous people that you've researched. But in the meantime, just something you said there about coaches and people who can maybe identify with the challenges that other people have. I think when we look at, say, mental health, there's a gradual shift happening in terms of how we perceive success versus failure in terms of mental health. I think that there would have been some implicit beliefs, especially that many men would have shared in the past that, hey, if I'm going to handle things well, if I'm going to cope successfully or manage successfully with a situation, I'll be able to deal with it myself. I'll be able to solve the problem, figure out a way of addressing this. I'm going to show I'm strong, I'm resilient. I'll work this out and get through this difficult time and maybe not divulge to others about struggling. And the most sad thing is when people it turns out, have been going through such a period of depression for many years or in the worst case where people have taken their life and it's not been obvious to others that they've been struggling through a period of time and what's been happening there? Have they got caught up in their mind with this notion that success is managing any challenge that comes your way just by yourself? Well, wait a minute. It's actually a more if you like, enlightened, in some ways advanced way of dealing with challenges in life to be able to draw on the supports of others around. Humans are herd animals. One way of dealing with challenges or stress is involving our social engagement system, our talking with other people, eye contact, the connection that we can have with other people. I think that's one thing that's being redefined. What if you like, success versus failure is in mental health. And going apart from the idea of success versus failure anyway, just looking at more healthy, more adaptive ways of dealing with things and taking the pressure off having to be in control all the time. Well, I think that's a a profound and and a great thing to have picked up on for the mental health field. And and what will illustrate that, Dad, will be a, a couple of the stories that we'll get into in just a moment. But before we do, I think it'd be worth touching on, I know there were a couple of points that Albert Ellis made, who's a good friend of the podcast. Albert Ellis, of course, one of the pioneers of cognitive psychology in the 20th century. But he spoke about failure and about some observations that he had towards failure. What, what are those, Dad? Okay, and I'll mention we did have a podcast earlier about Albert Ellis's notion of irrational ideas that would lead people to have difficulty, and one of the ones he highlighted was the notion of fears of failure, and he had a chapter in this wonderful book that came out in the 60s, but very relevant to the field and even to this day, and the book was called A New Guide to Rational Living, and he was looking at Stoic philosophy and how we could draw on that to address things like anxiety and depression and mental health problems. And he had this chapter called Eradicating Dire Fears of Failure. And this is one of the most common chapters that I used to give to clients. Very rarely I still do. It's about 60 years ago. But these are some of the points that Albert Ellis made about attitudes to failure. He described that We're not competent or masterful in all areas. No one is. If you think of someone as a famous sportsman or scientist or just someone we absolutely look up to, there'll be some areas that they're very competent in that will know them for that, but there'll be other areas where they've probably got not much clue at all. So sometimes people get caught up in expecting themselves to be competent at everything. If they really slip up at something and they think, oh, I'm an idiot or really screwed up there, that can be an expectation. 
the other thing is he highlighted that someone's achievement on a particular task or goal or even in their career or whatever, that doesn't make them worth more or less than another person in terms of that perceived success or failure. Don't over-identify with achievement. Our identity doesn't need to be wrapped up in our achievement. People make an effort on something, it goes well, well that's really preferable. If something doesn't go so well, well that might be unfortunate, there might be some negative consequences, but we don't have to label our worth in that way. He emphasised that if people overemphasise accomplishment, then that can lead to quite a degree of pain or sacrifice. It's not always worth it. If someone's really, really sweating over things that might be more minor or they're spending 80 hours a week working on something and they're getting no time with their family and friends, well, hey, is that worth it? It might be way out of balance. So there can be that overcommitment to certain kind of goals. He highlighted the problem if people tried to excel against others in a sense in a competitive way show they'd be performing better than others i think like that old famous poem desiderata it describes how if we compare ourselves to others including in performance at whatever we're going to likely end up vain or bitter the other thing he mentioned is that if people try and set the bar too high with their expectations, and we see this a lot in a therapy setting, then people are going to tend to look to avoid certain challenges because they're not going to want their worth to be on the line. If we expect ourselves to achieve 100% in something or just achieve beyond the level that we might reasonably expect, that's just going to create pressure, anxiety, pain for ourselves and that can lead people to procrastinate or put things off entirely or just not have a go at something or make excuses for ourselves. That doesn't work too well either. And then the other thing he emphasised again with this notion of balance, often we'll work more productively if we work near our potential. It's like that performance arousal curve. To a certain point, the higher our level of arousal or striving the better we'll perform. But if we keep on going, we keep on pushing ourselves on that arousal curve, that striving curve, that reaches a point we can get burnt out or worn out or just exhausted and then our performance will drop. So it's looking to pick that sweet spot. Even with things that are really important, sometimes it's really better to aim around 80% than aiming at 100% when we can't sustain that. Those were some of his main points. I think they're all really interesting points and, and they seem to relate a little bit to that idea of maybe a sense of striving for achievement, getting out of whack a little bit. And like I, I think that's very interesting what you're particularly saying about what you were saying at the end there. Like this is something I've only sort of started really doing in the last couple of weeks, Dad. So I'm still a bit of a rookie at it, but I've started doing like a weekly reflection at the end of every week on a Friday, for example, looking back over the week and thinking, oh, you know, how did I go in terms of, you know, did I get enough sleep? Was I waking up early enough? Was I, you know, eating good nutritious food enough? Was I sort of social enough? And But where that started was it was literally just looking at work things and saying, you know, did I have the output that I wanted to? Did I work as many hours, you know, in the evening as I wanted to? Like sort of things like this. And what I realised is that weeks when I was doing well at that, I everything else was going to mustard a little bit. It was sort of, you know, my friendships, I wasn't seeing people and certainly didn't feel like, you know, calling people and talking to them at night and things like that. And so now I've got, you know, basically a whole range of criteria sort of beyond just work. And But that's something that for me, it was so helpful to look beyond just those parameters of, well, what, you know, for example, at work, 
am I going to grade myself on this week? That's interesting that you've been doing that. That makes perfect sense to me. But I think it's also a wonderful example that if we reflect on any meaningful area, we step back and we look to be a bit honest with ourselves, but also with a bit of self-compassion, being fair with ourselves, we're seeing what we can learn. Then it's funny how the more we appreciate or understand something about one aspect of our life, like you're saying, it can lead us to have more awareness in other aspects of our lives so yeah that's a really interesting example and if you like some level of reflection that might bring in a little bit more in some ways order or organization without being too rigid about it then yes that can actually lead to benefits in other areas we end up maybe having more conscious choices when we reflect like that Absolutely. And just one quick story before we get into today's stories from our famous fellowship today, Dad. I was speaking to a friend one time who'd done an internship in Singapore. And oh, this always stands out to me as one of the most incredible stories of work, culture and ethic. But it was working in this high rise building in Singapore. And, you know, I think they recognised he was an Australian sort of thing, so he didn't necessarily have to buy into the degree to which this was a thing. But basically people would get to the office about 6 o'clock in the morning and they would leave the office about 11 o'clock at night and they'd go home and they'd sleep and then they'd be there the next day. So I think he, he said he didn't have to do that as much. But at the building, the office building where he was working from, they had a initiative that was running, all these posters on the wall, this sort of stuff, and the initiative was go and have dinner with your family once every three months. So like they had to make a stipulation that every three months you should go and have dinner with your family. And look, not to, not to speak ill of, a, of another culture, I'm sure there's many things about you know, working in Singapore that are over and above what, what we have here in Australia. But that stood out to me as something that I thought, that's a, a big focus on achievement and work and the professional side of life, like if, if you're only seeing your, your wife and kids potentially four times a year, you're only having dinner with them, that's a big focus to be having on work. And potentially for me anyway, seeing that example, it was you know, maybe an extreme example of, of when striving for achievement can go to the nth degree, if that makes sense. But it was striking to me that in some ways that that's what it looks like when you do sort of take achievement to its kind of logical conclusion if that's all that we're going to be focusing on. Gosh, that is quite remarkable, isn't it? And it does seem to be so out of balance and somewhat disturbing, really, that they say once every three months as opposed to three times a week or something like that because it's seemingly validating the idea of people ridiculously extending themselves. And so, well, it also shows how we're influenced by the culture around us. And as we talked about last week, it starts off in our families, our family attitudes, schools that we attended, our peer groups, then our work settings. But ultimately, it's also for us to have our personal choices. And that's what we're encouraging people to do with this too, stopping and reflecting on our approach to striving and achievement and seeing if we can tweak that balance a little bit. Certainly. So, Dad, let, let's get into some of these stories because I just do find them fascinating that people that we look on with such high regard went through these experiences. So Sir Isaac Newton, for example, his mother pulled him out of school as a boy so that he could run the family farm and he failed at that miserably. So as a young boy, without having had the opportunity to show who he was as a, a scientific mind, 
he would have been seen by potentially himself and potentially, you know, his mother in, in those times that were maybe a little bit more black and white, the way they looked at the world. He would have been seen as, as failed at that. But we look back at Isaac Newton as, as one of the most important and influential figures in human history, really. Aren't we lucky that he was a lousy farmer? Our machines wouldn't have worked so well, would they? No, certainly not. And I suppose what that leads me to, I think, is that Einstein quote, Dad, where Einstein said, everybody's a genius, but if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life believing that it's stupid. Yes, well, when you mentioned Einstein, I did a little bit of research myself after you described the topic we were going to talk about this week, and I saw that his school teacher wrote in a report, he will never amount to anything. Now, talk about judging someone's worth by their performance. Talk about misjudging someone's worth by their performance. That is really quite remarkable. Absolutely. And, well, yeah, what a misjudgment. And I suppose that Einstein quote, like, yeah, I believe he had some difficulty communicating and learning in a traditional manner when he was a young child. But I suppose the notion of that quote is that, you know, if everyone finds their thing, then eventually, you know, you, you'll come out okay if you sort of find what you're good at. But these next couple of people, Dad, they seem to fly in the face of that a little bit because they turned out to be quite good at the thing that they seemingly failed at in the first place. And the first one is Oprah Winfrey, who was publicly fired from her first television job as an anchor in Baltimore for getting too emotionally invested in her stories. So I I would have thought that would be a a real strength of Oprah's was the emotion that she was able to bring into her interviews, yet it cost her her first job. Yes, her empathy being such a strength, the way that she can bring out emotion in the interviews that she has with people. But that seems to be an example as well. It's partly the fit with the person and their environment. It seems there that the producers of that TV station had a certain perception or perspective of what maybe interviews should be and maybe Oprah in the end found a much better format and fit for herself than working in that particular setting. Well, as well, Dad, like it strikes me that, you know, so much is in the eye of the beholder in that sense in terms, you know, I suppose what that showed was that that producer actually didn't know much about television as a whole and maybe they were looking at things a little bit too rigidly and that actually reminds me of Walt Disney who was fired from the Kansas City Star because his editor felt he lacked imagination and had no good ideas. I reckon if there was one person that I would speak of say out of the 20th century who had the most prominent imagination Walt Disney you'd think it'd have to be up there like what a what a turn of events. It's remarkable. I believe he was responsible for that word imagineering. That's what Disneyland was on about or Disney Productions, as you say, synonymous with imagination. So again, I think what can happen sometimes with people's misjudgment, I wonder if Disney might have come up with some things that others just didn't understand. I think sometimes people can either be ahead of their time or people can have ideas that other people don't pick up on. And maybe sometimes if people have ideas that all of their ideas are acceptable to everybody else, that's going to be a kind of mediocrity. Like if there are going to be ways that we're going to be really innovative or being ourselves, it might be a little bit hit or miss, but I can't help but wonder because Disney was such a genius at creativity, maybe just his ideas were lost in translation with that particular person. 
And that reminds me also a little bit of Theodore Zeus Geisel, better known as Dr. Seuss, had his first book rejected by 27 different publishers. So I think that gets to that idea of what you're talking about, Dad, in terms of, I think, well, if we look at, you know, say someone like Dr. Seuss, someone like Walt Disney, there was so much of an element of novelty in what they were doing that potentially the people who fired them or, or didn't accept their ideas, potentially they just thought it was so out there and so novel that they weren't able to almost connect it back to kind of originally what they were trying to do. But I suppose it shows that you can be a couple of steps ahead potentially and, and maybe it does take a little bit time for everyone else to catch up, maybe like Dr Seuss. Well, I'm glad that the 28th publisher liked poetry because otherwise we wouldn't have got green eggs and ham. Definitely. And, well, Dad, Harrison Ford. So obviously famous actor Harrison Ford was in so many different movies. During his first small movie role, an executive took him into his office and told him he'd never succeed in the movie business. Like, A, I think, what a, what a kind of horrendous thing to do to someone, to sort of take them into your office and sit you down and say almost... You know, I just I need to tell you this, son, you're never going to make it. It's like, well, what kind of constructive element is there to that? But, well, that's all right. Harrison Ford, he was able to roll with the punches and move on. Yes, well, as another famous actor and film producer, Petty Ustinov, so famous actor, I think, also on the stage, and I think also he composed musical pieces and things like that, just a remarkable genius. Well, apparently in school on his report, his teacher said, Peter tends to set himself very low targets, which he then fails to achieve. So quite remarkable that apparently one play he had, I think it might have been in London or whatever, he changed his accent every single performance. So it doesn't sound like someone who's got no standards. No, certainly not. Yeah, it strikes you. You hear of people who maybe are one step ahead of the teacher at times and maybe get a little bit bored at school, and I wonder if that was maybe a case of that. But... Dad, the next person that I want to talk about, look, to be honest, I've actually got a little bit of an issue with how it's written here. It says, J.K. Rowling was a single mum living off welfare when she began writing the first Harry Potter novel. I don't think it's really fair to call a single mum living off welfare a failure. But what strikes me about that is, like, I, I have heard before that I believe J.K. Rowling wrote the structure for basically the first six Harry Potter books in one four-hour train ride. So it all kind of came to her in, in that one train ride. But then over the course of obviously months, she was sitting in, I believe, a, a coffee shop because she was using the, the heating to basically be able to stay warm in the depth of London winter. But the thing that really strikes me about that is J.K. Rowling was the exact same person with the exact same idea when she was sitting in that coffee shop unable to afford heating for herself. But... It was just on some level she hadn't executed the idea that was stuck within her. So, like, look at all the people out there who are in maybe a comparable situation to what J.K. Rowling was in when she was writing that book, yet what she was able to produce, we hold it up as being one of the most amazing works of, of fiction, certainly of my generation. Yes, so there could be aspects of timing or luck or opportunity that make such a difference, but clearly such an accomplished writer with such, again, a wonderful imagination. If I might mention also another writer, it reminds me, I looked up something on Charlotte Bronte. Now, here was her teacher's feedback and her report. So she's the author of Jane Eyre. She writes indifferently and knows nothing of grammar. Well, she must have picked up somehow. She seemed all right with Jane Eyre. 
Absolutely. Well, I was thinking about that one before, Dad, and like some of these criticisms of famous people, they should almost have a name next to them because I reckon that person would almost be just as famous after a little while. Certainly infamous. <laughs> Definitely. But So, Dad, in one of Fred Astaire's first screen tests, an executive wrote, can't sing, can't act, slightly balding, can dance a little. So Fred Astaire, of course, a famous movie star from the, the 20th century, from the early days of film. And oh, I think a, a few people, maybe a few ladies from the uh, 20th century disagree with that, Dad. Yes, well, I think even Olivia Newton-John danced with him in a particular movie. They highlighted that as part of her career recently. So he was an absolute famous doyen, wasn't he, of the 20th century? But fancy criticising him for something which, again, he was a genius at. And I think from what I've, I've seen of Fred Astaire, Dad, I reckon he would have rolled with the punches. It would have been water off a duck's back a bit. But, uh, Dad, the next one I find really interesting because it relates to the idea of narratives that we spoke a little bit about last week. Like, for example, if we experience multiple failures in a row, it can be tough not to build a narrative around that. And Lucille Ball, so the famous actress, she appeared in so many second-tier films at the start of her career that she became known as the queen of B-movies. So I remember when I wasn't necessarily exposed to Lucille Ball's career, Dad, when, when she was working, but I remember when she died, it was a, a huge thing. It was, you know, Lucille Ball, one of the preeminent movie stars of her generation, yet for her to have a reputation as the queen of B-movies, there would have been a lot of that that would have been hard to transcend. It would have been so easy to stay the queen of B-movies, you know, you're the to be the queen of something but she was able to get to the stage where she thought you know what i've been the queen of b movies for a while now i'm going to be the queen of a movies such an innovator i can remember seeing some of the early episodes of that show i love lucy and that was in the 1960s but she was again such a creative comic genius absolutely and of course perceived failure isn't just in the uh the acting and the writing industries dad Lady Gaga was dropped by her record label Island Def Jam after three months. Upon receiving the news, she cried so hard she couldn't talk. Now, I reckon if you were to have a conversation with Lady Gaga while she was in that frame of mind, obviously really upset at, at how things had gone, she would have probably seen that venture as a failure. But I reckon if you were to speak to Lady Gaga now and you were to say, oh, looking back at your career, would you change much? I don't necessarily know that she would. Now, just as you mentioned Lady Gaga, it reminds me another famous actor, Bradley Cooper. Now, this is different from the notion of other perceiving someone as a failure. There's a wonderful podcast episode on a podcast called Smartless. So three Hollywood actors, I think they're mainly in comedies, but a wonderful podcast they've got, and they interview different actors and people that they've known through their network in Hollywood well with Bradley Cooper there's just a remarkable episode where despite all the success he has had he reflected on a period of time with a way that he related to other people he realized he needed to change that and he realized how insecure he felt in himself so it's a wonderful podcast for someone who's had such success in life in Hollywood but a person who's very honest in reflecting on his own life and experience. And I think what comes through there is the importance of someone's feeling of connection with other people, their acceptance of themselves, how they relate to other people. That's a podcast that I think helps redefine 
the notion of success for men. So I'd advise people if they have an interest in something like that, but Bradley Cooper, the episode on the Smartless podcast is just wonderful. Well, that's absolutely fascinating. I, I haven't come across that one myself, Dad. When you said Bradley Cooper, I thought you're going to talk about that song with Lady Gaga and... I reckon I've heard that one a little too many times, but it actually reminds me of, I've heard Matthew McConaughey speak about similar things on a podcast, and they're just fascinating to listen to them, like two people who would hold up in popular culture in many ways as, quote-unquote, being as successful as they come, particularly as a guy. I think there is maybe a, a you know, sense of you know looking up to these sort of movie stars, and if they're able to connect with those experiences in their life, like, I think that's just a great message. Yes, it's wonderful if as a role model they've experienced that what we would often think of as objective success and they redefine what's important. Absolutely. Now, Dad, we've just got a couple more and then we might uh, might have a, a little chat to finish up. But a young Jay-Z, so one of the most famous rappers of all time, he couldn't get any record label to sign him. So what I find fascinating about that is that Jay-Z has become a bit of a, a music mogul himself. Like him and his wife, Beyonce, have done a lot in terms of the business side of music. So potentially he held on to that experience of going, hold on, no one's signing me. I saw potentially myself that no one else did. And so he's been able to leverage that in his career and create a, a music business that's been able to identify and access people who are in exactly his situation. A good example, it reminds me of another musician, John Lennon. Let's get back to his school report. It said he was hopeless, rather a clown in class, Certainly on the road to failure. Now, interesting in a way that it mentioned that reference to a clowning class. Now, we know that John Lennon's sense of humour was one of the things that was another dimension to his wonderful ability and songwriting and demeanour and, and why people partly loved the Beatles, that part of it coming across their humour. Absolutely, and maybe it's through virtue of being a couple of years post-school, but I think there's an element to which we... Now, he used to look at the clowning class as maybe a little bit of a problem child. Whereas I think looking at, for example, so many comedians, so many musicians, you know, podcast hosts, great podcast hosts, people who, you know, are successful now, who would have described themselves as the clowning class. And, you know, when you've heard them speak about things, it could be down to whether it be being bored or could be something as simple as having dyslexia, which once they were able to identify and, and sort of find support for that, then it was just no longer an issue. So we seem to be a little bit more enlightened about that idea of a clown in class, Dad. Yes, it can be easy to be judgmental, can't it, if people just look at one aspect of a person's behaviour. But I think, like you said, say with dyslexia, I've known a number of clients who had dyslexia and they developed different kind of ways of deflecting away from their difficulty learning or reading in certain ways. And sometimes that did develop these other kind of skills that they had. But you think, what judgment those people faced if it wasn't understood what struggle they had with that formal achievement? and maybe not getting that understanding that could have made a real difference because maybe some people didn't develop those wonderful comic skills or other kind of ways of deflecting or showing that they're really good at sport or something else. That I think that's an example of saying don't be too quick to judge others. Absolutely, and just a, a final one, Dad. So Stephen King, the famous novelist, he grew so frustrated over his attempt to write the novel Carrie that he threw away an entire early draft. 
So I reckon if that was me, Dad, and I reckon I'd gone through the entire effort of writing a novel only to throw it out, it would be very difficult to then write the same novel not long after, let alone make it a success the way that he did with Carrie. Yeah, so it's really interesting to think of these different examples of individuals and just, again, it shows that 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 line between success and failure is far more arbitrary and that we might be a bit more wary to apply those labels. But look, one thought comes to mind as we're approaching the final seasons of football, of Australian football finals coming up, well, different codes of football are coming up in Australia, the finals. And it reminds me the language sometimes, as well as in politics, the language of success and failure is sometimes the notion of survival or death. They talk about that after elections sometimes. They talk with these metaphors about survival or death. And so we know that in evolution, then success means survival and failure might mean death. But in our culture, sometimes that there's way too much emphasis on the outcome of particular situations. And I think all the examples that you've come up with, the people that we've reflected on, they were people who involved themselves in life. They found things that they were interested in or they were good at or that turned them on, so to speak. It was their thing. And maybe that's a reminder that that's a way to go, look at what moves us and focus more on that rather than just how we think it's turned out well or badly. Well, I think that's such a good point, Dad. And as you were describing that there, I reckon there's there's three things I reckon that I've taken from these last couple of episodes. Like that's one in terms of, you know, find your thing that you're on about, find your, your sense of meaning and purpose. And that's going to help you overcome so many of these perceived quote unquote failures. But then the other thing is that, you know, looking at people like, for example, Dr. Seuss, Harrison Ford, Walt Disney, Oprah Winfrey, I think even Steven Spielberg was rejected from the University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts multiple times. Like it seems that somewhere along the way, someone had too much of a rigid interpretation of who they should be. It's, yeah, you might have all this creativity about you, but you just don't have what we're looking for right now. And to me, like what strikes me looking at some of these people, like... They were the exact same person, both before and after success. And, you know, as we're talking about it over these couple of episodes, I'm I'm almost starting to think of it less as success and more as external validation from, say, the the wider public or people beyond just your immediate, say, group of friends and that sort of thing. Like, to me, that's such a different way of seeing it in terms of like, yeah, there's going to be success about all of the elements of what these people did. But that's not to say that someone who hasn't got there yet isn't, you know, going to do that. And it's like, what's the point of labeling someone a failure if they're just going to be a success in six months, two years time sort of thing? Like it just suggests to me that there's kind of more to it than I think I've certainly thought about it as before. And I wonder if maybe culturally we perceive it to be like we talk about success and failure in these such black and white terms but to me it's so much more complicated than that like someone can perform the exact same thing get externally validated for it and suddenly it's a success whereas if you know the right people aren't there to listen to it at the right time suddenly it's just a bit wacky and a bit out there and you know they're off doing their own thing that no one can relate to like as you say it's such a fine line between what we perceive to be success and what we perceive to be failure And it's such a fine line that as we go over this over today's episode and last week, to me it's kind of shattered the perception about just how black and white those terms really are. Yes, so often when we talk about success, really what we're looking at, I think as you mentioned, that notion of 
external validation, that external acknowledgement. Now, it's relevant in terms of external rewards. If the community or an employer or clientele or audience see something as being successful, then in certain ways that might lead to more pay or opportunities or advancement. It's something that we can also call formal achievement. Formal achievement in terms of people's school performance, whether people have got a job, those kind of things. But that's external. And so we're partly talking here about the difference between also external motivation, doing something for reward that others might give you, and internal motivation. And that's where we get back to the notion of meaning or purpose. If we can do things and find things that are worth doing for their own sake, that includes the connections that we have with other people, the interests that we have, if we find that internal motivation, we're more likely to persist at things, find it worthwhile, get satisfaction from it. It's an example, for example, writers. Most people who write, if they look to put something forward to a publication company, most people are going to get rejections, like if J.K. Rowling did and so many people did. Most people will get rejections. However, if people find writing for its own sake or painting worthwhile or some other task or sport or something they enjoy doing or catching up with friends and having a conversation, having a laugh, that kind of thing, that's a lot of what makes the world go round, finding the things that match our internal motivation, that implicit benefit we get from it. Well, I think that's such a, a good point to finish on, Dad, in terms of I look back at all these people that we spoke about today and they had such a strong sense of internal motivation, it seems. Like to keep going, I think like I think of, you know, James Dyson. So James Dyson, who I spoke about at the start, five thousand one hundred and twenty six failed attempts. Like I reckon I'd get bored counting to five thousand one hundred and twenty six, Dad, let alone failing at something five thousand one hundred and twenty six times before you finally get the one that uh, succeeds. But I suppose what comes from that intrinsic motivation is the ability to withstand some of the maybe opinions that come from people who you know, maybe, maybe just have a, a rigid interpretation of the way things should be, like, for example, Einstein's teacher at school. If we can develop that intrinsic motivation, well, then that's just going to help us, you know, so to speak, get back on the horse and just make that next opportunity because that, that's part of what it also seems about, Dad, is, is it's about recognising that, yeah, like, failure is going to be part of this, but what can we do to make the next opportunity when it does come around? Yes, if I just think of a simple maybe phrase of looking at this, I think the notion of looking to go beyond the ego. So not getting so hung up on how we might be perceived or how others might value something. That to me is an expression that helps get things in balance. Absolutely. It's a yeah, great way of looking at it, Dad. And well, thank you for chatting with me about all this today. I've, I've enjoyed chatting about all these people and recognising that, you know, even for some of the people, like Steven Spielberg got rejected from film school. Like that is one of the most ridiculous facts that I reckon I've ever come across. But yeah, at the end of the day, he was able to get it done. So it shows that even if that is the case, yeah, there is a way to keep going. Shows how arbitrary people's judgment can be, can't it, Ron? I think you've picked a really good topic for these couple of episodes. I've enjoyed a different way of looking at the issue of success versus failure. Oh, thanks, Ed. No, it's been good. But we'll put everything up for today's episode at sykespeels.com.au. Thanks so much, Dad. I look forward to the next one. Look forward to it, Ron.